You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. As far back as 5000 BC, there was evidence of some understanding of inheritance and selective breeding for livestock and crops. Now today, we can clone. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Joel Heller. Our guest today is Dr. Eugene Pergament, professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Northwestern University and past director of reproductive genetics at Northwestern. Today, we're going to discuss the past, present, and future of genetic testing. Welcome, Dr. Pergament. Thank you. When, how did genetic testing have its start? It probably started shortly after World War II uh, in earnest. Actually, there was some insight into the biochemical genetic area at the turn of the century when Garot described alcaptinuria, where a patient's urine actually turns black on exposure to air and associated with arthritis and uh, hearing loss. And he understood then, more than 100 years ago, that there may well be some type of enzymatic deficiency that might be associated with that clinical condition. But it was really after the Second World War when the genetic uh, understanding of such diseases as sickle cell came to play, where we understood changes in um, single uh, nucleotide units making up DNA were responsible for uh, manifestations of uh, sickle cell disease. Eventually, in the late 1959, early 1960s, chromosomes came into uh, the clinical setting by the description by Lejeune of the cause of Down syndrome being due to an extra 21. And over the next uh, 30 and 40 years, uh, techniques in cytogenetics improved, along with additional uh, improvements in inch by inch, so to say, of a molecular understanding of the nature of genes, how they act, and how they reproduce. So it started basically after the Second World War. In the year 2007, who should be offered genetic testing? The first uh, group of people who would be offered genetic testing may be those who uh, come from certain ethnic groups. Uh, genetic carrier screening for sickle cell disease, Tay-Sachs, thalassemia, you know, associated with uh, either African-Americans or Ashkenazi Jews or people of uh, the Mediterranean area. Uh, that's, that's one level. People uh, at the other end of the spectrum, uh, if you will, adults potentially at risk for familial forms of breast cancer or ovarian cancer, there are specific uh, tests for those. Individuals who manifest particular genetic disorders would require testing. And, of course, there is prenatal testing and prenatal screening for chromosome disorders that's routinely offered to all pregnant women. Let's talk a little bit about the, the recent ability to do some gene testing for breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Can you describe for our listeners a little bit about the most current testing, how accurate they are? The two gene sets that they're looking at is uh, referred to as BRCA1, BRCA2, which stands for breast cancer 1, breast cancer 2. Those are two specific genes. They really were should have been named breast and ovarian cancer genes because they're associated with an increased risk of uh, breast cancer. One must understand that if one tests possibly 100 individuals, uh, each of whom have a breast cancer, as an example, the mutations in BRCA1 and 2 may only account for at most 5 to 10% of those people. So there may be at least 90% of the people with breast cancer in which we cannot 
identify the specific nature, the genetic change that's associated with that condition. Geneticists and people in oncology believe that all cancer is genetics, but that doesn't mean we have the answers to all of these problems. So one has to understand that testing for breast cancer and ovarian cancer, one may not find the nature, the genetic nature or specific nature of the mutation or group of mutations responsible for that condition. For those families in which BRCA1 is found and a mutation has occurred, uh, there are ways to now use that information to determine whether or not one is at risk and potentially what that risk might be. Carrying a mutation in, say, BRCA1 does not mean automatically you develop breast cancer. It, what it does do is place you at increased susceptibility, so you may have a, a 50 to 80% chance of developing breast cancer. There are people who have the mutation who simply never develop breast cancer. What I'm basically saying is that it really requires considerable counseling prior to the testing and an interpretation of the testing results uh, if one is to undergo such kinds of testing in the first place. What, what are the differences for that patient that unfortunately comes back positive that puts them in a 50% versus the 80% range? And so you have this information. Do we, A, have enough patient study to know that these numbers are good? And then, B, what do we offer those patients? Well, I don't think anyone has an idea of why one is 50 and one is 80, that range. Uh, it probably has to do with other genes that we simply don't literally have our hands on, in other words, the background. Also, we don't want to minimize the role of the environment as to minimizing or accentuating the development of these. So these genes don't operate in isolation. We're beginning to get information about the specific nature of the mutations because there can be within the gene for BRCA1, within the gene for BRCA2, many different places for mutations, and those different mutations may have a different clinical consequences. That's being developed over time. And there is some information for specific mutations as opposed to ones that we're not too sure of. As to what one does with that information, um, one would ask whether or not it would considerably change the management of that patient conceivably might not. If there's a family history of breast cancer, common sense tells you that there are certain kinds of practices of examination, self-examination, professional examination, mammography, etc., that might be more appropriate, uh, started earlier, and watched for more carefully. There are people who would act on information and undergo mastectomy, in certain instances, ophorectomy, in order to minimize the potential of developing breast or ovarian cancer. And people have used that information in that, in that form as well. And finally, it's very important to realize that one can always also give good information or positive information that despite the fact that there is a mutation in a particular family, that you are an individual who's not carrying it. Even there requires very careful counseling because it's not zero risk for breast cancer. You're back to the population risk. And the population risk for breast and ovarian cancer is not a small risk. Uh, what can you tell us, Gene, about what's happening today about genetic therapy? Well, it's a field with lots of promises, but it's still, if you will, in its infancy. Um, there are extensive efforts uh, in place trying to develop vehicles for delivering genes in a uh, way that doesn't compromise or clinically compromise the recipients. 
And unfortunately, for some of the gene therapies that have been applied in immune disorders, uh, the genes apparently landed in the wrong place and created uh, neoplastic conditions uh, for which the patient, unfortunately, may have paid a serious price. So gene therapy is still a field that has a long, long way to go. And for the most part, treatment is still, in a sense, symptomatic. Two of the examples that are out there are the, some of the stuff with the cytochrome P450 and the thiopurine methyltransferase enzyme. Are you aware of any other success stories like those? A partial success story in terms of gene therapies for one of the... Um, SKIDS, one of the immune disorders uh, in which the individual can't respond to various infectious agents. That's the one that also was associated with um, leukemic changes. But I'm not too sure of any other uh, good examples uh, that one could cite and say it's really in place. There was a great deal of excitement about the potential of uh, gene therapy, but I think it's really quieted down. Now, there's treatment now for chronic myelogenous leukemia where they deal with the unique proteins associated with it. So there is some uh, hope uh, with uh, that and potentially with other leukemias where um, they can identify the nature of the uh, pathogenicity of the disease. I think eventually that's what's going to be in for that they will have personalized medicine. It may be a little bit more cosmopolitan than just personalized, but they really have to understand the nature of the disorder. I think the best example to show you how difficult it is is sickle cell disease, where here we know every single step of the disorder from the nucleotide changes to the clinical effects, and, and yet Therapies for that are still far and few between that are very successful. I mean, they've tried bone marrow transplants, and um, they do work, but they do have very significant downside to them as well. Where do you think we'll be 20 years from now, 30 years from now, in terms of testing, screening, and in terms of treatments? I do think you're going to have this $1,000 genome scanner available where potentially everyone can have their own genome scan to determine what mutations they carry, potentially what the environmental impact might be to modify your environment to minimize the effect of specific genes. So I think you eventually will go toward uh, an adjustment in terms of your lifestyle and in, in terms of diet, in terms of exposure to various elements. Will you uh, plan having children with uh, someone on the basis of uh, your genome match? In a certain sense, and in certain uh, ethnic groups, that's already being practiced uh, among the Orthodox uh, Jews and uh, among other uh, ethnicities. Uh, they do arrange marriages on the basis of whether or not you're carrying single gene mutations. Is there concern about people being tested for genetic diseases and its effect on their ability to get and keep insurance? As far as I understood, and particularly in the state that I come from, Illinois, and also on the federal level, there, there has been that same concern and that they've passed rules and regulations to try to minimize that. But the geneticists as a group tried to do studies demonstrating whether or not that was a reality. And it, up to the present time, I don't think anyone is necessarily determined or being able to demonstrate that that actually has been happening. And my sense of it is that the insurance companies 
are not interested in that at the present time. In other words, they're charging across the board. Everyone is sort of paying the same uh, amounts to cover the effects of, of a clinical disorder or a group of disorders. Are there individual examples where people are being denied insurance on the basis of uh, genetic testing? No, but I think people are being denied insurance on the basis of family history without doing the testing, simply by asking the questions about what did your mother or father die from, insurance companies can tailor their response on the basis of that. So they may not, it may, may not be necessary to do the genetic testing to be discriminated against. It may be that you just give them your family history and you may find yourself in difficulty. I want to thank Dr. Eugene Pergament for being our guest today to discuss the evolution of genetic testing. I'm Dr. Joel Heller, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.